Sketches from Scripture presents Wandering Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. For those of you that are believers, I hope that this uh, study through the book of Numbers, but really all of the Torah, many of you have been here since the Genesis series. Uh, I hope that it's been informative and educational, but I hope it's been encouraging and challenging and has helped you um, grow and mature in some way. We started talking about spiritual maturity last night and um, the growth and maturity and how sort of the the acme of growth, the apex of growth is when you're able to turn around and, and help someone else along and disciple someone else. In other words, um, mentor someone else into trusting and following Jesus more closely. That it's really, it's not a teacher-student relationship. It is uh, an apprentice, mentor-apprentice relationship. And some of you may feel that you have not sp- spiritually matured enough to consider yourself a mentor, you know. But um, if you're farther along than somebody else, then you can turn around and, and offer a hand back and, and sort of bring them along. So um, so you should do that. Uh, Jesus commands us to do that. And so we should listen to him and his, his word should be enough for us. So that he commands us to do that should be enough. So uh, many of you watching have been in church for a long time and... If you haven't already gotten to the point in spiritual maturity that you're able to go to other people, some of you have done it, have discipled your children, have helped your children grow, but you have neighbors and you have uh, co-workers or uh, friends, even people that you go to church with that just are still spiritual children just because they've not been, they've been malnourished. I mean, they might get a sermon, you know, every Sunday, but, you know, one, one hour in the Bible is, is not enough. And really by the time you look at how much scripture you're actually in on a Sunday, I mean, it's just a few minutes. So we really need to be discipling each other to get in the word and really dig in. That's one reason that I pick a book and I go straight through it because we don't get to hide from difficult passages. You know, when we do that, we we're sort of forced to deal with some things that are a little challenging or difficult. And, um, also, I like to do big swaths of text because it helps us see the storytelling. So that's one of my fascinations here is the storytelling, the st- what the storytelling tells us about the story that's being told. 
And so um, there's a lot to look at in the books of Moses. And I've been using, as I've said before, primarily uh, Robert Alter's translation and commentary, Five Books of Moses. You can get the Five Books of Moses by themselves, or now he's got the entire Hebrew Bible. Uh, if you get it like as a hardback, it's a three-volume set, or you can get it as an ebook. Um, I have a, a some friends in Murfreesboro that got me the three-volume set for Christmas one year. It was this really f- fantastic gift, and um, the artwork on it is just really incredible, and uh, the information inside of it is is um, is, is is quite good. Uh, as I've said before, Alter. Uh, the man who's who's done this translation and commentary is not a Christian. He's Jewish um, by by heritage, and uh, I'm not even sure how devout he is as a as a Jew. It may just be his nationality. He, he is a professor of Hebrew studies at UC Berkeley, but I can't tell you about his his faith or um, anything like that. He, he does seem to be more academically liberal in terms of dating things and authorship and some things like that. But he has really wonderful insights about the storytelling in the text. So not every commentator you're going to agree with everything on. Uh, it's kind of like preachers. You're not going to agree with every preacher on everything. You're not going to agree. Everybody in your own family probably has disagreements about this or that other finer point of some theological thing. That's 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 to be understood. So the thing is, when you approach a commentary, you ask, what's the purpose of this commentary? You know, what does it serve? Does it serve that purpose? Is that useful to me, um, not just in having knowledge about the Bible, but in really understanding it so that I can apply it. What's the whole point of this? Remember, the whole point is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. If, if, if we're studying scripture for any reason other than that reason, other than to love God or to love others, then um, I don't know, like, why, why are you doing it? It seems like it's kind of a waste of time unless you're doing it for those reasons. That's that's what we're after. So uh, I've been in a lot of classes. I've heard a lot of sermons. I've been, you know, in some church communities where the study of Scripture seemed to be more about uh, learning about God rather than knowing God. It's two very different things, right? So um, I can... Um, you know, I can learn about a country music star by getting on Wikipedia or by reading a biography or watching a watching watching their music videos, listening to their music, right? But uh, I have a friend. His name is Shane, and he writes music and he writes custom songs for people. And he was a, a student of mine in Memphis, and and we became really good friends, and we're still good friends to this day. Shane is somebody that I know. I've never read a Wikipedia entry on Shane. I don't have to because I know him, right? So you see the difference in knowing about somebody and knowing someone. So if we come to the Bible as students, then we come to just learn things. But if we come as disciples to the scriptures, then we're coming to learn how to do something. And the, the thing that we're trying to learn how to do is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, trust and follow Jesus Trust and follow the Lord more deeply and to love our neighbor as ourself. In other words, to uh, serve others, to minister to others and to disciple others. All that's included in spiritual maturity. So, okay, so we're in Numbers 21 tonight. So get a Bible. Uh, if you don't have one already, I am going to read it. I don't uh, actually, I think I have the slides on the screen. So um, maybe we should just uh, maybe we should do that. So let's go back to the keynote here. And, oh, yeah, let's just do a review real quick. So, first of all, 
The book of Numbers in Hebrew is actually called In the Wilderness, because remember, the Hebrew names for the books come from the first word in Hebrew of, of the book. So Genesis is not called Genesis, it's called In the Beginning. And Numbers is not called Numbers in Hebrew, it's called In the Wilderness, because that's the, the first word of uh, Numbers in, in, in the Hebrew. Much better title. Uh, let's go with that. Uh, I've shown you the sort of the path of the Exodus and that they've wound up. Uh, classically, people would think somewhere on what we call the Sinai Peninsula, which is the triangle in the center of your screen there. Uh, I say it's probably over on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba to the right, to the east, um, in what is now um, modern day, either northern Saudi Arabia or possibly southern Jordan. But um, we're talking a difference of you know a few hundred miles. They're, they're in the wilderness. They're in the desert. It's in this this part of the world. In this particular series, we, we did the Genesis series. That was a separate series. Now we're looking at um, this time period of, of the Exodus and the wilderness. So we begin with the book of Exodus and just really running through again. So you can kind of remember what the chunks are here. Uh, one Exodus one through six is the history of the Hebrews, Moses and God's call. Chapter seven through 11 is the 10 plagues, 12 through 15, the Passover and the Exodus. 16 through 18, God provides between the Exodus and his appearing on Sinai in 19. Exodus 19 through the end of the book is God on Sinai. Moses is on Sinai. The <clears throat> Israelite people are at the foot of Sinai. So you, you have the Lord's glory showing up. You have the tabernacle instructions given, the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle being built. You have the golden calf incident. You have the Lord defining himself uh, to Moses. Book of Leviticus, first seven chapters are offerings. Then we see in eight through 10, the ordination of Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu. Then we have the unholiness of Nadab and Abihu that is ended immediately by God's judgment. And then that seems to lead right into chapters 11 through 27, which is rattling off of a bunch of very specific laws um, that if you were to compare them to the pagan nations around them at the time, the laws, many of them would not seem so arbitrary. They're speaking specifically to uh, the pagan practices of the people around them. The big point of the laws were, we're not going to be like the Egyptians from whence we came, and we're not going to be like the Canaanites where you're going. We're going to do things God's way. So uh, that's really the, the point of Leviticus. And again, it's about holiness and cleanliness versus, uh, versus impurity and uh, defilement. Book of Numbers, chapters one through eight, is the, that first census and sort of the organization and how they're going to move as a tribe, moving for the first time, which happens, I believe, in, in nine and ten. Nine and ten is the second Passover. So now we've been in the wilderness for a year, and now they really go out into the wilderness at this point. And right away, chapters 11 and 12, you get the immediate rebellion where people are begging for real food. They don't like the manna. Uh, Miriam and Aaron sort of challenge Moses's authority. God shows his judgment in both of those situations. Chapters 13 and 14, they send the spies to scout Canaan. 10 come back saying the people are too big. Uh, only Caleb and Joshua say, yeah, the people are big, but the land is good and the Lord is with us, so we, we can take it. Um, despite Caleb and Joshua's goodness, the people listen to the other 10, and God punishes them with 40 years in the wilderness, one year for every day that the spies were in Canaan. But furthermore, 40 years represents a generation. So the idea is that this whole existing generation of adults will die out and the younger generation will grow up and new children will be born and the 
nation of Israel that goes into the promised land after the 40 years of wandering will be essentially an entirely new, it's, it's like the molting of a skin or the shedding of a skin. It'll be an entirely new Israel that goes into the promised land. Uh, 15 through 19 are really just stories of rebellion versus holiness. We looked at uh, the man gathering firewood um, seemingly rebelliously. We looked at uh, Korah's rebellion and the people that were with him and the earth swallowing them up. We looked at Moses's rebellion in chapter 20, water from the rock. Uh, also in, in 17, 18, 19, we see how God treats the priests, that they get um, uh, you know choice meat from, from the temple and they're taken care of. So the Levites don't get land as a possession, but they get something better. They get the Lord and they get the service of the Lord. And so that now brings us to Numbers chapter 21. So in the first um, three verses, which I don't have on the screen here, there's a Canaanite king and he comes down to make war. And Israel says, if you hand these people over to us, we'll completely destroy their cities. The Lord listens to their request and hands them over and they completely destroy the cities. And so you have, um, you know, the people saying they'll do something, God says, okay, and they actually follow through with it. So maybe this is a new people at this point. We're kind of thinking maybe they have uh, learned something, but we're going to find out now here, beginning in verse four, probably not the case. So uh, I'll read from uh, the version on the screen. I guess this is English standard version, a favorite version of mine. English standard version adheres pretty close to the original text, as close as you can. You always lose something translating from uh, into English, particularly from Hebrew, because it's so different. It's different in syntax. And in fact, Hebrew reads right to left instead of left to right. So it's just it's an entirely different um, language. But ESV sticks as close to the original text as it can and still be uh, coherent and readable. So uh, Numbers 21, verse 4 from the ESV. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Uh, assuming that they're talking about the manna there. So let's go back and just look at the map for just a second. So wherever we decide that they have kind of been hanging out around Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh Barnea could be uh, just south of the southwest of the Israeli border on the Sinai Peninsula, or it could be down um, sort of below the Jordanian um, border or just over the Jordanian border. But it's somewhere below the Dead Sea there where they're in Kadesh Barnea for 38 of the 40 years. So again, this, the stuff that we're reading, we're pretty sure is uh, year 40. So, so those 40 years really kind of flew by. There was only kind of a couple of stories that happened in that 40-year time period. And so now we find ourselves at the end of that period as this new Israel is about to go into the, the promised land. And so they're having to bypass the land of Edom. Um, Edom, as best we can figure, is somewhere going to be south of the Dead Sea, kind of coming up on the Dead Sea. And Moab would be just to the east of the Dead Sea. So as you're looking at this map, uh, you see the, the blue along the top left half. That's the Mediterranean, of course. Then the green there, you see it says Israel, Gaza, Beersheba. I'm not sure if you can read that little text or not, but I think you can see where it says Israel. And just to the right of that is blue, and that's the Dead Sea. And so just on the other side of the Dead Sea, you'll see there's a little mountain range there. That's Moab. 
uh, particularly kind of towards the south. And then Edom is somewhere south of that. And they're trying to bypass that and go around. And so you can see wherever Kadesh Barnea is, wherever the Israelites have been, to get around Edom and get over to Moab so that they can eventually uh, cross the Jordan River, which is up north. It's off this map. Jordan River is not on this map, but it, Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. So to get around Edom, I mean, they're just wandering around in the desert. They're going back towards the Red Sea from where they came. And the people are saying, what's happening? Like, we, you know, we don't we don't know what's going on. And again, of course, they're blaming Moses. They, they never really seem to address the Lord in all this. It's always complaining to Moses. So picking back up in verse six. So they're complaining, they're complaining. There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So even look at that complaint. There is no food and we loathe this worthless food. So it's like, okay, well, you do have food, apparently, because you, you're you complaining about the food that you do have. So it obviously can't be that there is no food, right? So even by their own words, they sort of judge themselves, right? So moving on to verse six, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Okay, there's kind of two ways you can take this, and I'm going to suggest that we uh, take it essentially both ways. Okay, <laughs> I want to get, I want to have my cake and eat it too with this scripture. But um, what they say is, um, we have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. This is the the first time, really, that Israel is seeking forgiveness. Remember back in the Genesis series, those of you that were here for that, when we saw Judah, the first person in the whole Bible that takes ownership of his sin, right? So we saw the Israelites do that in the uh, at the end of the scouting story. Once uh, God punished them to the 40 years, they said, oh, we realize now we should have listened. And they try to make up for it. And God says, no, no, you, you're going to have to wait the 40 years. I'm not going to go with you if you go now. So you see that they're starting to take responsibility for sin. This new generation, that seems to be something that maybe might be a characteristic somewhere in there. They're, they're taking responsibility for their sin and they are asking for forgiveness. That's one way you can take it. Another way you can take it is uh, when you have snakes biting you, you're going to run to the Lord and ask him to, to get them to stop, especially since he's the one who sent them on you. So it could just be they're only sorry because they're getting bit. Okay. So what I would say is, yeah, I just, how about let's say it's both of those. Okay. So that's the big thing about Genesis that we looked at is, you know, are, are people good or are people evil? Well, the answer is uh, yes. You know, the answer is people are made in God's image. They're capable of great good and often do really good things. But we also learn from Genesis that every person is evil from their youth, that every person is going to do selfish things. Every person is going to do something to hurt other people. If you if if you have a belief that says people are basically good, period, or people are basically evil, period, that's not a very complex view. It's not really supported well by scripture, and it just doesn't reflect real life. I mean, even good people mess up and do bad things. Even evil people do something good accidentally, even if it's just to serve their own purpose. You know, so it's like we, we have to kind of live in the ambiguity a little bit. And remember, that was sort of one of the big points of Genesis was, is there some framework of living 
where we can live between the perils and the promise, right? If every person is evil and we all deserve death, but we're capable or made in the image of God and we're capable of living godlike lives, you know, how do we reconcile that? And the answer, of course, as we found is forgiveness. And that's what we see happening here in Numbers 21 is they're asking for forgiveness. Is it because they're truly sorry or is it because the serpents are biting them and they don't want to be bit anymore? Well, isn't that why God sent the serpents for them to learn the lesson, right? For them to be disciplined, for them to understand. So I think if, if you say, is it because they're really sorry or is it because they're, they, they don't want to get bit anymore? I would say the answer is, yeah, it's, it's probably both of those. It seems to be both of those. Notice what they say first. Remember, dialogue is very important in the storytelling in the Old Testament. So the first thing a character says, either as the character is first introduced, or in this case, the first thing that they say in a story tells you a lot about their character. So the first thing they say in the story is the complaints, right? So that tells you a lot about their character. But once the punishment comes, look at the very first thing that they say. We have sinned. That's the first thing they say. They don't say make it stop. They don't say, go pray to God, get him to stop. They, um, they, they say, we have sinned. That's the first thing that they say. And then they go on to say, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So when they were complaining, they were complaining. It says against God and Moses. Um, so, but we've seen sort of throughout the scripture, they've, they've really been talking to Moses because they're not talking face to face to God like Moses is. And so they're putting a lot of this on Moses's shoulders. Moses, in the chapter just before this, even sort of falls into that trap where he sort of takes responsibility for the water coming out of the rock. That ended up him uh, getting him uh, kicked out of uh, being able to enter the promised land. That's a big deal. So here, now we see them going to the Lord and we do see them having some repentance here, having some uh, asking for forgiveness, being sorry for the things that they've done, acknowledging it. So let's give them a little bit of credit at least. So Moses prayed for the people. And so we see, again, Moses is a prophet in the way that Abraham was described as a prophet back in the early chapters of Genesis, because he is praying intercessory prayer. He is interceding to God. When you're interceding for someone, you are between the person you're interceding for and that person you're interceding to, right? So Moses is going to God on behalf of the people. He's in between them and he's praying for them. And that makes him a prophet. He's interceding in prayer. By the way, that's something that all of us can do. So prophecy in the sense that the Lord gives you a specific word and that you're supposed to go out and proclaim it to a group of people or to a person. If and God may do that to you and, um, you know, God bless you if um, uh, God gives you that experience. But certainly we all can be prophets in this sense that we intercede in prayer on behalf of others. And so, um, Moses prayed for the people. Verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay. This is kind of a crazy story, right? So, um, what, what, what is it that's happening here? What's, what's, what's going on? Um, the, first of all, the serpents in the Middle East, they, they're called the fiery serpents. And uh, I don't want to make too much of that, but let's look at um, serpents in the Middle East. So here's a book, Venomous Snakes of the Middle East, right? And you can just see the cover of the book. It's got this orange, this orange venomous snake. Here's a photograph of such a snake. You see how they're kind of reddish 
um, you know, cobras of the area have kind of this red color, very fiery looking, right? And uh, so this is the punishment that is, is sent as these kind of snakes going through the camp. Uh, I don't know about you. I'd be terrified if I saw something, something like that coming at me. I would definitely be praying and trying to figure out what I did wrong if I didn't know already. So uh, the snakes in this part of the Middle East are, are, are modeled. They have these fiery red spots. And so <clears throat> what God has done here, they're complaining about the land that they're living in. And yet they're, they're missing the journey that they're on because the Lord is physically with them. They, they can see the cloud. They can see the fire. In fact, this generation that has grown up, most of them do not remember a time that the Lord wasn't geographically, physically with them. And they'll, they'll come to understand that once they get into the promised land and the cloud goes away. And um, God becomes uh, something that is, is is more ethereal and 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 something that is more nebulous and and, and sort of hard to grasp. But when uh, they're in the wilderness, he's he's right there, and yet they complain. What do they complain about? They complain about the land. So the Lord uses the Lord uses the land against them for judgment. The wilderness itself is a discipline, a judgment, and from within it comes another discipline, another judgment, another reminder that the Lord is trying to take care of them, but he's also trying to discipline, to build them up into a people that ultimately are doing what? That ultimately are trusting him, trusting and following him. This is the big thing, trust and follow. If you can remember those two words, trust and follow from this series, if you can get that, then you almost don't even need to remember anything else. That's the whole point here. The Lord wants us to trust and follow him. So the serpents were not the calamity infecting Israel. The serpents weren't the problem. Complaint, bitterness, rebellion, lack of trust in the Lord, uh, lack of trust in their spiritual leadership, uh, immaturity. These were the calamities that were infecting Israel, not the serpents. What were the serpents? The serpents were the judgment. The serpents were the discipline, the punishment. And, and why? Because the word of the Lord should be enough. When God says, hey, we're going to go down here, we're going to go by the Red Sea, we're going to go around Edom, and now we're going to go over here. They're looking at the cloud. The, the, the deeds and the word of the Lord should be enough, but it wasn't enough for them. So the serpent would provide the vehicle for healing, right? So the serpent comes and provides the judgment. And now a serpent, the brass one on the pole, would provide the vehicle for healing. It's not the serpent that heals in the same way that the serpent wasn't the sin. It's not the serpent that heals. It was, of course, the Lord who healed them. But he healed those who practiced obedience and trust. You, you really cannot. There is no such thing as trust without some kind of action. Okay, so we have this word in Christianity called faith. And because of um, bad theology and milquetoast Christianity and a bunch of other sort of religions and some new age things and spirituality and these kinds of things, the word faith has become a word that means like, um, I'm just going to believe something, even though I don't have the data to back it up. That's one version of it. The second one is uh, it's some kind of a warm fuzzy that I have. I just have faith, you know, I just kind of hope, I wish, right? Okay, the word faith in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the word faith does not mean that at all. It's not what it means. The word faith in scripture always means trust. 
Okay. And we use the word faith in this way also, but almost never in a religious context. It's almost exclusively outside of religious context that we use the word faith correctly. Okay. So I'm sitting currently, I don't know how much you can see, I'm sitting in this wooden chair. Okay. Now, when I came up here tonight, I just sat right down in this chair. Now, why did I do that? Because I've been coming up here almost every night, you know, for the last couple of weeks and sitting in this chair with no problem. The chair doesn't appear to have any difficulty holding my weight, despite uh, you know, the pizza and ice cream and hamburgers that I've had in the last couple of days. Right. So I don't sit here. I don't inspect the chair. I don't like lightly kind of test it out. No, I just plop right down in it. Why? Because I have faith in this chair. I have faith in th that this chair is going to hold me up off the ground. Even if I'd never sat in this chair, I probably still wouldn't inspect it before sitting in it. Why? Because I've sat in a lot of chairs. If the chair splayed out from under me, that would be surprising. That, that I plop down in a chair and it supports my weight, that's not surprising. That's what chairs are supposed to do. I have a lot of experience with chairs, so right, as many of us do. And so when I just sit in one, yeah, I just I put my faith in it. Now, if I was telling you about how much faith I had in this chair, and the whole time I'm like squatted out over the chair, right? as long as I've got tension in my thighs, I don't really have faith in this chair. I don't, I'm not really trusting this chair. But as soon as I let go and let the chair support my weight, I'm putting my faith in this chair. So there really is no such thing as trust. There really is no such thing as faith without some kind of action, right? You, you understand that? It's, it's not that the action makes you worthy of anything or that the action earns you something. It's just, that's what faith is. Faith is obedience. Faith is following through with something. Faith is some kind of action. This is what James talks about when he says, hey, you show me your faith without your works. However you plan on doing that, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Right. So to put that in plain language, he would say, OK, you show me you trust something by doing nothing at all. How do we even know? And I'll show you I trust something by putting my full weight in it. Right. So then that scripture make a little more sense now. So so faith is not just sort of warm, fuzzy or it's not it's not even blindly believing something because the Lord, the Lord blesses people and loves people who, who trust in him right away with, with just, you know, no reason to. But we have plenty of reason to. We have the natural created order around us. Those of us that have studied scripture have plenty of scripture, plenty of reason to trust him from here. God even says, he's in scriptures that we've already read. We're not even, you know, much far into the Bible yet. And God is already saying, I am the God who brought you out of Israel. He's reminding them, you have experience with me before. You've seen the things that I've done. You saw the Passover, you saw the, the the Exodus, you saw the Red Sea, you see the manna that you're getting every day, you see the cloud, you see me at the tabernacle, you see my servant Moses, you see the things that I've done for you, you see the water from the rock, you know what, why I'm here, you know what I'm doing for you. That's the God who I am. Because of what I have done, trust that I will do the things that I say that I'm going to do in the future. All right? So... Now, when you go and read Hebrews 11 and read about faith, right, the faith hall of fame, if you just take the word faith and substitute the word trust every time, suddenly I think that passage will really open up for you. So it's got to be very clear about what faith is and it's trust. And so that's what's happening in this story here in Numbers 21. It wasn't any magical incantation or looking at the snake. I mean, it doesn't, you know. There, there's no medical reason for for it. There's no biological reason. There's no accidental chemical. I mean, there's nothing. They're not even, they're like across the camp and see it and they're healed. It's clearly the power of God that is doing it. But God is doing it when they practice obedience. It is the practicing of the obedience that exhibits the trust. 
they go hand in hand. They, they, they're really not philosophically. You can talk about them as separate things, but in reality, you can't talk about them as separate things. If you have someone who says, yeah, yeah, I trust the Lord. And I trust that if I look at thing, that thing, I'll be healed. And they never look at it. Well, then of course they're never going to be healed because they're not exhibiting the trust, right? So we find this in the modern day practice of baptism. Baptism was a ritual that was done for lots of reasons by the Jews of Jesus's time. And the most of it was about ritual cleansing. Okay. So outside the temple, you have all kinds of, uh, singular is mikvah, plural is mikvot. Uh, it just means baptistry. There's like 150, 180 baptistries all around the outside of the temple because to go into the temple area, you would have to be baptized. Every day, anytime, if you went into the temple three times in one day, you'd have to be baptized before you go in every time because you're coming out from the city and you're dirty. You're ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. You would go down into the pool and you would be baptized and you'd come back up and then you'd go into the temple and do whatever that you were going to do in the temple. Baptism was a way of life for Jews. They completely understood it. So when John the Baptist comes along and he is baptizing people in the Jordan River outside of Jerusalem. That is odd because he's not a priest. He's not a rabbi. He's some crazy person, some homeless guy living out in the wilderness, eating bugs and honey. And he's got the authority to baptize people, to pronounce people ceremonially clean. And for what? They're in the Jordan. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Right. So it's very confusing to the Pharisees at the time, to the religious people at the time. So then um Jesus comes along and he talks about baptism. And in fact, he references this very story when talking about baptism in John chapter three. So I think that I may have slides for that. Yeah, I do. So let's go to John chapter three. If you've got your Bible, you can turn over there also. And so what happens, set this up for you just real quick. So John, um, gospel of John, the writer, is telling us about a time that a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who's a member of the Sanhedrin, meets with Jesus. And he meets with Jesus at night. And so that sort of indicates that he's trying to do it in secret. He doesn't really want to be seen with Jesus, right? And so he, he says to him, he says, uh, Jesus tells him, you must be born uh, of water and of blood. In other words, born of um uh, sorry, born of water and of the spirit. So what he's saying is you must be baptized and also have the spiritual transformation. And uh, so here he is quoting the passage. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you, we speak what we know. And we testify to what we've seen, but you don't accept our testimony. If I've told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will I tell you if I, uh, how will you believe if I tell you the things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So again, in the context of uh, baptism, all of John chapter 3 is talking about baptism. And of course, here we have John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his only his one and only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So again, it's not in numbers, going back to numbers 21, it's not that the serpents were there to kill everybody. It's that the, the serpents were there to discipline them, to teach them to trust 
the Lord. And the Lord provides them a way to be healed because the whole point is that they would learn to trust the Lord. It was not to kill everyone. If God wanted to kill everyone, he's had numerous opportunities to do it thus far, right? And so in this whole chapter of John, 20, of John chapter 3, Jesus is talking about baptism. And so even people who quote uh, John 3.16 as saying, well, if you just believe in Jesus, that's enough. Miss the point that John 3.16 is couched inside an entire dialogue about baptism with Nicodemus. And so that's the context for John chapter 3. So what is baptism? So with salvation in the New Testament, you hear the word of God and believe it. And that just like the people in Acts chapter 2, when they were pricked in their hearts, when they realized that it was their actions that had killed Jesus, when we realize it's our sin and, and we want to repent of our sin because our sin has hurt other people and it's hurt God, just like the people in the story. We have sinned. We've sinned against you, uh, Moses, and we've sinned, more importantly, we've sinned against the Lord. They say that, right? So when that happens to us, what do we do? Just like Acts chapter 2, they ask that question, what can we do to be saved, right? And Peter gives them a very straight answer. you got to repent. In other words, you got to turn away from the life that you're living. you got to change your heart and your mind. you got to turn around. That's what the word repent means. you got to turn around. You've got to, you've been going this way. You now got to turn around and repentance is not just about, oh, it's not, it's not like flipping a switch. It's, it's like being in a ship in water. You've got to turn around and you've got to start going the correct direction because the whole thing is you're trusting and following Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. Jesus doesn't say, come to where I am. He says, follow me. Jesus is on the move and we've got to follow him. And there's a narrow path that we've got to get to and follow him on. So that's that first thing is repent. Um, Peter says, you've got to repent and be baptized. And that's how you get the forgiveness of your sins. And it's that ceremonial that ceremonial cleansing that they were all familiar with. None of them would have any qualms about being baptized. They were baptized daily. But this was about being baptized to put your faith in Christ, which was a big deal to these people in Acts chapter 2. And it was a big deal for somebody like Nicodemus, because somebody like Nicodemus wanting to trust and follow Jesus would have cost him everything. And I wish I had time to tell you more about Nicodemus. Maybe if we do uh, Gospel of John lessons later down the road, maybe we can talk about him. He's one of my favorite characters in scripture. But the point here is just like the bronze serpent, Jesus comes uh, into the world and to the religious people, he appears to be a serpent, right? And and he ends up being the salvation of, of all people, right? So once again, the sign of salvation comes in the form of that which bit against them. The form that came to judge them was the form that was lifted up to save them. Uh, I found this uh, quote in um, uh, one of the commentaries uh, as I was researching this lesson back three years ago. And I'm going to read it twice because it takes a minute to kind of chew on it. Then Christ appeared upon the cross under the assumption by the blinded world that he was the betrayer and corrupter of men. Remember, Jesus's um, sentence for which he was given the death penalty was blasphemy, was making himself equal with God, right? That was his charge, ultimately, was blasphemy. And it was not enough that they stoned him to death. They wanted to uh, see him hung on a cross, hanged on a cross, because in a verse that we'll read uh, or will blow by in Deuteronomy chapter 20, I think it is. It says anyone who's hanged on a on a tree 
is cursed. This is about the practices in Egypt. I think we can actually, there's a verse in Genesis where it talks about impaling uh, bodies on a, on a pole. This was a practice of a lot of the peoples around. Uh, sometimes it was after death. Sometimes you were impaled on a pole while you were still alive. But the point was, if you're impaled on a pole, it's a curse. It's part of some pagan practice. And so it was very important to the Pharisees that Jesus be crucified and not just stoned out in the streets, because by being a blasphemer, what had to happen was that he must be hanged on a tree so that everyone would know, the Pharisees thought, everyone would know, this man is cursed. And if you follow him, you're cursed. You're following someone who is cursed. And they really believed that they were doing the right thing. But um, they didn't understand what was happening. So starting again, then Christ appeared on, on, upon the cross under the assumption by the blinded world that he was the betrayer and corrupter of men, the serpent in the bosom of the people of God, while in truth, he was absolutely the contrary, so that believing humanity must recognize its saving friend in the form and image of its hereditary foe. So what this from the commentary is saying is Jesus came as um, looking as if he were a rebel, a, a blasphemer even. That's what he appeared to be. But the people who knew him, the people who took time to listen, to see the works that he did and to put their faith, to put their trust in him, to trust him and to follow him. They knew he was God. They knew he was the son of God. They knew that he was the savior. They knew and they demonstrated they knew by being baptized in his name. And so that's the big thing here from Acts chapter two is when you see the son and you want to repent, what do you do? Well, one has been lifted up for you and you demonstrate the faith that you put in him by obeying the act of baptism. So it's a lot like weddings. It's like, like getting married, right? Could two people who just decide, hey, you know what? I think we're married. They say a prayer to God, God, we want to be married. And then they live their lives together married. I mean, that's not how we do things, right? You have some kind of ceremony. There's some kind of legal process. It's different in different countries, but there's some kind of process. There's like trading of rings or some, there's some sort of ritual. And it's not until that is done and done in front of witnesses that everybody goes, okay, now we all know they're married. Okay. Before that ceremony happens, they're not married. And after that ceremony, they are married. Right. This is sort of a very clear line. And it's this action that sort of must be performed. It's not the action that marries them. It's their commitment to each other that marries them. But we know they're committed because they have a ritual where they say we're committed to each other because we see them exchange vows in front of each other. Right. OK, so baptism being saved in Jesus is the same thing. We can say that we are saved by him, but we've been given this ritual of baptism that we go through that we do in front of other people that we do as an act of submission. It's not a work that earns us anything. The only person doing work is God. We're not doing anything. We're just letting somebody push us underwater, right? That's not a work. But baptism is what saves. It's not the baptism itself. It's not the water itself, but it is that demonstration of the faith that we have. Likewise, those of us who have already been baptized, many of us listening to this have been. Our faith is not demonstrated by the one baptism we had 40 years ago. Our faith is demonstrated by our continuing obedience and our continuing growth and maturity as a disciple. So if the only act of obedience that you've ever done, you know, we say, oh, people, he obeyed the gospel. Okay, I'll believe he obeyed the gospel when he dies because he's got a whole life to live of obeying the gospel. Now, I know what that means. It means he's been baptized. He's been saved. Okay, that's the beginning of obeying the gospel. 
But the rest of the good news is to go and make disciples of all nations. And so when he, a person lives a whole life of that, then we can say that person truly obeyed the gospel throughout their life. And it was exhibited in the things that they did. So that's the big lesson for tonight is trust and faith is something that we can't see, but in scripture, it is always given to us in a form that we can see in a form that we can demonstrate because it is our actions that demonstrate what's going on in our heart. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.